everyone is um, his or her own personal note. And with our own rules, we basically um, create also the future. Because when we look to the quantum uh, or the sphere of, uh, uh, of the quants, then we see everything is indecided at this point in time. But if we focus our attention, a decision will be made. So the quant is jumping to either zero or one. And I think our attention is like the, the laser beam, which creates um, reality uh, in a sense, like a reason um, 3D printer, basically. And yeah. wherever we focus, that's what we create. Welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show, a Bitcoin philosophy show with Knuts von Holm and me, Luke the Pseudofin. In today's episode, we welcome our guest, Andreas Franke, and we listen to his fascinating story. Andreas is a paramedic, therapist, hypnotherapist, and founder of Lab Coach, a service that provides counseling and support on the topics of Bitcoin, sustainability, and digitization. Andreas tells us all about his near death experience, and together we discuss trauma, stoicism, fear, invisible enemies, the dangers of isolation, and how Bitcoin can help us envision a better future. Get ready for this great episode, but before we start, we'd like to quickly remind you that the best way to support the show is to send us a boost or stream us some sats on a value-for-value podcasting app such as Fountain. If you're listening to this show as a podcast, check out Fountain if you haven't already. You can earn sats from listening to podcasts, and you can support your favorite shows through value-for-value. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like, subscribe to the channel, and turn on notifications so you never miss a weekly episode. And finally, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Orange Pill App, Wasabi Wallet, and Consensus Network. All their information is in the description, and we'll be talking a little more about them later. And so, without further ado, here is Andreas Franke on the Freedom Footprint Show. Andreas, welcome to the Freedom Footprint Show. Happy to have you. Hi. It's nice to be here. Yeah, Andreas, I wanted to have you on this show because we met recently in uh, Plochingen outside Stuttgart, Germany. And we we had a a wonderful night where we sat up and and philosophized until 3.30 in the morning and told each other stories from our adventurous lives. And you had an absolutely fascinating story. So I invited you here to tell that story on this pod. But first of all, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do and your story before we get into the meaty stuff? Yeah, of course. I'm happy to do so. So hi, everyone. My name is Andreas. Um, I'm a paramedic and hypnotherapist. Um, in my fiat life, I'm working as an educator in the uh, ambulance and paramedic uh, scene, so to speak. And uh, for the plebs, I offer value for value coaching with the brand Jet Coach. And that's how I met Knut uh, in Stuttgart in Dopping. So Pleb Coach is that logo you have on your uh, sweater and also behind you at the beautiful beach setting you're in. Yes, that's right. A bit about the Plochingen event. This was at uh, the Hotel Princess, a great hotel, the, the world's first, but certainly not last, Bitcoin hotel with a, a, a lot of Bitcoin art and a Bitcoin ATM and Bitcoin stuff everywhere. Bitcoin books in every room, including uh, Seyfedin's book in German and my books in English. Uh, you get either either one or the, or the other if you check into that hotel. So I highly recommend the Hotel Princess in Plochingen, of course. And we were there. there were, this was a three or even four day event where we stayed at the hotel and had a conference. And I, I was so impressed by the Germans, how you let the... Um, the conference just go on and on and on. So uh, like there were talks till like 11 or 12 at night. I'm not used to that. Conferences usually stop at eight, but you just plowed on and on and on. And uh, yeah, it was great fun listening to the talks that I actually understood, which was <laughs> which were maybe 5% of them. But anyway, I was there with Prince Philip and uh, did a, um, a panel with him and a couple of other stuff. I played Who Wants to Be a Satoshi Millionaire and yeah, was signing books and so on. 
Then, then we had this story session at night, and you told me an absolutely fascinating story from uh, from a point in your life. And and could you please tell that story again? Because I'm eager to hear it slightly more sober than last time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I, I will tell it slightly more sober uh, than last time as well. Yeah, of course. So we were sitting uh, together and talking about events that uh, actually uh, challenged our worldview, as far as I um, remember. Uh, yeah, something like that. I had stories yeah. about the almost dying uh, and almost getting shipwrecked on the Atlantic yes. Ocean and stuff like that. But your your story won the grand prize. Uh, well, yeah, if there's a if there's a prize to win. So basically, I I told the story when I was stabbed by um, my closest friend um, at that time. So it was a near death experience uh, for me because I was stabbed in the in the neck. And we were just uh, talking about uh, how the situation basically evolved and um, my kind of framing on the situation, because basically I didn't realize that I was stepped, but when I realized it, I, I was like, oh, the first thought was, damn, I wish I would have lived longer. That was my, the first thought. And the second thought was, if I survive this, and at this point in time, I didn't know whether I'm going to survive it or not. If I survive this, then I will be better off afterwards than before. So that was kind of my my framing, which brought me through this situation and which in my worldview also helps me to to deal with the issue in a better and more relaxed way than I would probably do otherwise. For instance, when I woke up in the hospital, there was a nurse and she was asking me how the whole story uh, evolved. And I told her that I got stepped out of the blue um, in the throat. And she was like, oh my God, you must be traumatized by now. And I looked at her and I said, hey, look, if there's a trauma, it's going to stay right here under the bed in the hospital. And I I'm, I'm not going to take this trauma. I will not like accept it, but I will leave it in the hospital and I will leave without the trauma. And if you want, you can take it home. And she was looking to me. She was really shocked by what I was saying, but I, I was honest and sincere because that's my uh, worldview, basically. That's such a stoic and based response. <laughs> you can take your trauma <laughs> and shove it. But, but give us a, a bit of a background to how, how yeah, did of course. your best friend come to stab you in the throat? It's it's not something that happens to everyone. Yeah, which is, which is a good thing, basically. Yeah. So what what I didn't know that um, he was in a psychosis by that time, and I um, I, I didn't realize it either because um, I was busy with setting my my own world straight, and basically I was at that time thinking about Bitcoin very very much because I've been orange till just a few days earlier, and uh, therefore in my worldview. I was focused on myself and didn't realize what's going on um, with him. And yeah, at, at some point um, he couldn't decide what's real and what's not anymore. I mean, that's typically for a psychosis. And uh, he thought I'm looking to harm him. And therefore he took uh, preemptive measures and tried that I cannot harm him basically. And that was the stabbing which uh, lasted for like three to four seconds. And I'm lucky that it didn't last longer because if he would have attacked longer or stepped even more, then probably I, I wouldn't be talking to both of you now. So, yeah, we we can see you now because we're on video call and people who's uh, watching YouTube, you can see there's a, there's a slight scar in your throat there. So from yes. what I remember, he stabbed you from behind. Yeah, that's, and, that's and, uh, correct. And how did you manage to like tackle him off or like make him stop like how, how did that happen did you hit yeah, him on so the head with a toaster or something he, like what, what no 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 uh he, he grabbed me from behind and and stepped me and uh fortunately um he missed the artery in the throat by two millimeters that's what the doctor in the hospital told me afterwards he came to us and my parents were there already and he was like oh you were the lucky guy from last night because uh, the knife really missed your artery by two millimeters and if he would have hit the artery there's no chance for me to survive this but since the artery wasn't hit i was just able uh, to push him off um and and uh run away basically from that situation and he was not running after me or something like that he was just so confused he was 
busy with himself, but I could then uh, call an ambulance for myself and get out of this uh, situation, basically. Okay, so so he was still in this psychosis state uh, and you didn't feel like a need to incapacitate. I, I don't, I guess you, you're not thinking straight maybe after just being stabbed your, your your priorities become different i guess but but you managed to call the ambulance yourself while yes. bleeding from the neck yes and you and your friend who has just been trying to kill you is there lying on the floor or on a sofa or something yeah like, i didn't or, see him anymore because i pushed him off and i was just uh running was from it, the scene running from the scene so so was this outdoors yes. or like we were um, camping together, basically. Ah, okay, so okay, we were so like on a chalet in a camping place. So yeah, yeah I was uh, outdoors afterwards, you could say. But uh, no, in this shit. moment there was, uh, you know, uh, since I still regarded uh, him as my best friend that very moment, I, I was like, no, there's no need for retaliation or disabling him or, or discapacitating him well in in any like violent way i was really just defending myself and getting out of this situation um and i'm happy about it because i mean we could have started stabbing each other but then probably both of us wouldn't have survived so i'm just uh, happy how everything went holy shit what uh, yeah this story gets me every time but like and how how much do you think like you being able to focus like that and to, to take control of the situation Yes. How, how much do you think that had to do with your previous experience as an ambulance guy? Like because you were this paramedics expert already, sort of. Like, yeah. how, was was that the reason that you survived? Do you think? Maybe, uh, but I can tell whenever you become the patient, whatever you have in experience, professional experience before is not as helpful to you because you get you still get the adrenaline rush and you need to fight it in order to make like a uh, straight, straight decision. So um, I, I was just like, okay, shit happened. Let's make the best out of it. Um, and I remember having this black tunnel, you know, which is like closing in. And I knew that if my, uh, if my vision has closed and uh, everything is black and I didn't find help or could uh, find help for me till that time, then I'm just going to die as easy as that. And so I was very focused on getting help to to me and uh, and to the situation that was basically what i was uh, focused on and w were you still conscious when when the ambulance arrived yes uh, so actually i was uh, conscious till the operating table because i told myself to stay conscious like for every price um just in order to enable communication uh with the guy in the operation room basically all right i uh, did it just this is the stupidest question ever, but no, did, no, it, go for did, it. did it hurt? No, actually not. Till, um, till the ambulance arrived, I had enough adrenaline in my body, so I didn't feel anything. And when I was in the ambulance from there, the treatment was really, really good. Um, and I have to say thanks to the people. They did a great job. So I was given every um, drug and painkiller that I needed. So I, I don't remember having any pain other than in the hospital, like afterwards when it starts to heal. Um, again, actually, I even took a selfie in the ambulance car. I took a selfie with my phone because I said, okay, I'm hurt now and I probably look really bad, but it won't matter. Like I reached the operation room or not, but I can take this picture. It won't change a thing. So, so you're like, you have your arm stretched out and your other yes. hand like on your neck yes. and there's blood everywhere and you're smiling to yeah. the camera. The, the hand was down because I had the IV in the left arm, but yes, uh, I put the camera and took it. So, do you remember waking up after the operation? The the reason yes. I ask is because yeah. I, I had my appendix removed about a year back, a little more. And uh, like, I distinctly remember waking up alone in the, in the room in the hospital and not being able to do anything, but the bed up and down with the, with a little switch. So I think that's the only thing I could do. Like, and uh, I had to wait for a, a whole bunch of hours before someone came in. Well, what was your experience? So mine was uh, mine was better. I woke up and there was a nurse uh, with me in the room, basically, when I when I woke up. And when I woke up first time, I, I like didn't really wake up. It was like, yeah, everything is still like a bit cloudy and uh, I don't know where I am. But like maybe two hours later, I realized, okay, I'm in the hospital now. Uh, I, w I was pretty happy actually to uh, to wake up and be like, oh, I might have survived 
this this event so that that was really really a good feeling yeah and then i then i looked down and i figured that um they uh placed the casita basically uh for me so um uh, probably you know what it is it's, uh, so yeah you to help you pee manually yeah, yeah. and 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 there were, i was a bit upset because in the operation room i told them i don't want this and they did it anyway so they were lying to me the night before because i was uh -huh. refusing to be unconscious before uh, a nurse was promising me I will get no catheter, but I got it anyway when I was unconscious. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, you had, so you had to have the experience of having that thing pulled out. Which yeah, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> it was not not as bad as uh, as expected. N not as bad as being stabbed in the throat. But everything is relative, you know. <laughs> Everything's yeah, right. everything like, relative. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine like, oh, we want to put this thing in your dick. Well. I got stabbed in the throat, not in the dick. Like, did <laughs> you say dick on YouTube? I was referring to Richard. Yes. Anyway, uh, what what an experience, and and like, and you haven't felt traumatized in any way uh, afterwards. Yes, I have. I have felt very traumatized in a way that I'm not sure whether I, I'm going to survive it. But uh, if you talk about psychological oh. trauma, I mean, in the situation, I was like, okay, this is bad. This is really bad. And I, I'm not sure how this will evolve. But afterwards, I just refused to accept the traumatization because the trauma, the physical trauma in, in my throat already started healing and was treated by a really good surgeon so that everything was fine and I still had my voice. Actually, this is something I'm really grateful for because um, I could have lost my voice or my ability to speak as I do and language is so important for me and the things I like to do in life with uh, coaching and hypnosis and all that kind of stuff. So I, I was really just uh, feeling lucky to be alive and I refused because you see, um, if I would have accepted the trauma, then like I would be traumatized by now. And actually nobody in the world could help me because I would have accepted to have a trauma. And I just refused to do so because otherwise I couldn't be with people. I couldn't sit in crowded rooms and I could not accept people which I cannot see like behind me, you know. So do, do you think there's a risk that this will happen a couple of years down the line that you, uh, uh, that you at one point you'll wake up in the middle of the night and all of a sudden the trauma has a lag to it. Do you, do you think about psychology uh, or, or do you think you're this based that you can control yourself like to that extent? I'm not trying, not trying to push you to have a trauma here. That's, that's not the point, but, but I guess you understand the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I do. And if if you want to see that, you should ask. Like, uh, are you sure that I will not have the trauma before we end the podcast today? So you would actually figure it out. <laughs> Whether I have yeah, the trauma that would be a bummer. If we have to right start streaming, <laughs> or no, I mean, no, no. not even no, yeah, somebody it's a stupid room, question. So. <laughs> sorry, sorry. For no, that. no, no. It's a good. <laughs> no, it's a good question. I, I can tell you that in my point of view, the likelihood for having the trauma will decrease over time. And what you're talking about waking up in the middle of the night, I already had these events where everything that I have experienced in the situation is coming up again. But I know, I still know, well, this was back then. So I can experience it with some, with some distance, basically. And I can still feel comfortable while all those memories are coming up. And this makes me feel comfortable. And so I think overall, uh, the likelihood of a, a trauma later on will decrease. And actually, this was something um, I was really arguing with my mom about because she told me like, yeah, let's let's wait and see what comes down the line or what, what comes in time. And I said, hey, mom, please stop doing this. And she was like, doing what? And I said, please stop. If you expect the trauma to happen, then this will make it more likely for me to happen. So therefore, just assume that everything is fine and probably it's going to be that way. And otherwise, well, I will figure out. But if I start to worry now about what will happen in a few years, then how can I enjoy life in the here and now? Very wise way of thinking about things like this, I think. Yeah, I heard similar stories, but not none is quite like yours. I don't know how much you want to reveal or not reveal about this whole thing, but can you tell us a, a bit about what, what happened to the guy, like to your friend afterwards? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, first thing was that um, I remember that I called for the ambulance and the police, but um, actually I don't remember why I called for the police as well, but of, of course they, they came because somebody was injured and uh, while the ambulance um, arrived, I was just thinking that, holy moly, 
hopefully the police is not injuring my friend because, um, I mean, uh, there is a certain likelihood that I, I didn't know what his statues was or how he was. So there's a certain likelihood that, um, he will not be cooperative towards police. And so they will use force. And therefore I was really afraid that he's going to get injured in, in any way. So that was the first thing. And then, um, like what I um, figured uh, later, he was brought to jail and basically he needed several days to wake up from his psychosis. So for about one week or maybe even 10 days, nobody could speak to him or at least he wasn't responding. So that's how long it took for him to basically calm, da uh, calm down and, and um, check in with uh, reality again. And yeah, now, now um, he's, he's out of prison and I'm very happy um, about that. I, um, I helped actively in court. Like I was not getting him out of the prison, but uh, I helped in court and uh, told everyone that I see this whole situation as huge accident um, because uh, that's how I perceive this, um, this whole thing. It uh, should never have happened, basically. I mean, that, what a lucky guy he is to have a friend like you. That's, that's like, just after he has tried to kill you, you, you worry about him. Uh, I mean, that's, that's very big hearted. <laughs> like, what, what, what do you call, what's the word I'm looking for, Luke? Is there a word for that? You know, I thought, I think compassionate sounded pretty good. Yeah. Compassionate. Sure. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's kind of surreal that this, this whole thing happens and then it seems like you, you weren't really wanting consequences or, or like yeah. the worst yeah. consequences or something. Right. Yeah. 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 So what, what I wanted is that's also how I work um, when I'm in the ambulance. So the situation has happened and there's nothing I can do about the situation, but I can do so much about the outcome of how to, of where to go from there. Yeah. And I, I didn't want to make the situation worse. And I know that if I also right now, if I would knew he's still in jail, that would make me feel worse in, instead of now I know he has the chance to get his life back and to do whatever he pleases. And that's what I want for every human being, basically. That's wonderful. Uh, like all this story, uh, Reminds me of, of stoicism and the, the philosophy of stoicism and how you're the only thing you can really do in life is you only have this moment at every each and every moment. You only have this moment that you can focus, you can focus on one thing or another. And it's neurologically, it's unclear whether, whether even that is true. Like you can't control what thoughts come into your brain. But uh, I, I believe that there is such thing, such a thing as free will, since we have no choice but to have it. And by that, I mean you can, to some extent, choose w what to focus on in each and every moment. Uh, and those choices yes. are what matters. Th those choices will echo in the future, and uh, that's the most important thing. And like worrying about stuff and b feeling anxiety and and you know guilt and all of this that's counterproductive it's it's basically just a waste of time when you could be focusing on what can i do with, in this specific moment to make yes, make things yes. better I, I gave a talk in stuttgart which was actually the reason <laughs> that i was there unfortunately it was in german so it was yeah, not yeah. as interesting for knut yeah um, give, but, give um, us the tldr <laughs> yes, 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 I will. So I argued everyone is um, his or her own personal note. And with our own rules, we basically um, create also the future. Because when we look to the quantum uh, or the sphere of uh, uh, of the quants, then we see everything is indecided at this point in time. But if we focus our attention, a decision will be made. So the quant is jumping to either zero or one. And I think our attention is like the, the laser beam, which creates, um, reality, uh, in a sense, like a reason, um, 3D printer, basically. And yeah, wherever we focus, that's what we create. Uh, absolutely. The, this is a, a subject I've talked to Jeff Booth a lot about, uh, because he's, he's really into those ideas as well. And, and I, I believe to some extent that that's what we're doing now, doing here. We're, we're living the meme. We're making the idea for turning this into an episode, uh, came to me when, when you told the story the last time. So this is in a way it, it is that it is us focusing on making that become a reality. Uh, exactly. And it's a beautiful thing. And, uh, stoicism, I believe can teach us a lot about what not to focus on. Like focus on the things you can actually do something about, which is always like 
attention-based more than anything. Don't worry about stuff that can and will happen anyway. Uh, outside forces that you can't control. It will give you nothing to worry about outside forces that you can't do anything about. It will only make you not as aware, but not as in yes. the moment, not as alive, I would say. Yes, and it's incapacitating you. When you're focused on all the things you don't want to have, well, all your attention is gone, or your brain power is gone, and you couldn't change a thing. You're still like helpless in a way. But if you focus what you want, you will work towards that goal on a conscious and unconscious level. And this really is, uh, I think, our one of our greatest skills. Uh, absolutely. That's, uh, it reminds me of a quote from the Dune novels. Uh, Dune, the, the, uh, the, the f fear is the mind killer. Yes. What are they called? Ben and Benedict. I don't remember. But fear truly is the mind killer. And I think that fear mongers in our day and age are, have become very, very efficient at, at what they do. And our, our brains are, are biased towards reacting to fear and bad news. That's why the old yes. news are bad news, you know, because that's the only thing we react to because that's, it's very natural. It's those. <laughs> Those who paid attention when someone yelled tiger, uh, th those genes are more alive in general than who, who paid attention when someone said, check out this pretty flower. I mean, there's a reason yes. for, for us yes. reacting to, to fear that way. But, but they have become but so they, efficient with these invisible enemies, like w whatever the climate or terrorists or viruses or whatever it may be, or, or, or drugs or anything that can wage war on that is not a physical being uh, it's a very good tool for people keeping people afraid uh, and p people who are afraid are easier to control uh, yeah def definitely but I, I would even argue that uh, the, the ability of being afraid wa was a good one back then um, but but now our it's always like the tiger is a very concrete fear but the the fear which is spread right now it's always abstract because you wouldn't be afraid otherwise. Like you wouldn't be afraid of a tiger anymore. I mean, as, as hard as back then, because we have other tools to control the tiger, but this abstract fear, which you cannot really fight, um, and you cannot really see it, uh, but it's in, in the back of our heads for everyone, basically. <laughs> exactly. So when you're at the airport, uh, and you're in the security control, are you afraid that the plane will be hijacked or are you afraid that you will be harassed by the, uh, the security? <laughs> no, I, and uh, so when I'm in the airport, I, uh, I'm always afraid that I for forgot the knife in my uh, backpack, like, like I did last time. And there was quite some hassle at the airport because I was insisting that there's nothing in the bag. And clearly if you opened it, there was nothing to see, but if you send it through the x-ray, you could always see like a metal thingy at the bottom. And this was actually a knife I forgot in the backpack. And the security staff really made a hassle. And they were like, oh, now we will call the police. And I said, like, what for? Yeah, because you have a knife. Yeah, so just throw it away. I, I don't even intend to keep it. You know, this was my backpack. I was just hitchhiking. Hiking? Yeah, I was hiking before. And so there's, there was a knife in my backpack. But the, at the airport, this, this knife becomes a whole other issue it's it's like as if you intend to take down the airplane you know? yeah and you know, i guess having a big stabbing wound scarred <laughs> in your neck doesn't help when you want to convince airport security that you are not intending on stabbing intended on stabbing someone uh, never saw it that way but you might be today's show is brought to you by our sponsors first up orange pill app stack friends who stack stats Meet like-minded Bitcoiners near you and speed up hyper-Bitcoinization with Orange Pill app. Bitcoin isn't an online-only phenomenon, and Orange Pill app helps facilitate the social layer, connecting Bitcoiners in their local area. The best part is it maintains your privacy through the whole process, and since you have to subscribe to access the app, you know that everyone there is high signal and cares about Bitcoin. A great new feature is events. You can now create local events and meetups right from the Orange Pill app to help build your local community while maintaining the Bitcoin-only signal. Orange Pill app is available on iOS and Android. Download now. Next up, Wasabi Wallet, an open-source, non-custodial desktop Bitcoin wallet that is trustless, 
easy to use, and affordable. It has CoinJoin built in to facilitate your privacy. Every Bitcoin transaction leaves a clear footprint, but with Wasabi, you can make sure that others can't track your steps and threaten your sovereignty. Just send your coins to Wasabi, wait, and your coins will be private on the other end. It's open source, trustless by design, and non-custodial. You have full control over your keys. Check it out now at wasabiwallet.io. Double check that link. That's wasabiwallet.io. Anyway, about fear and like, I guess you see a lot of fear in your line of work when you deal with traumatized people and uh, working with the uh, the ambulance work, I mean, uh, and yeah. working with a lot of police and like, can you tell us a bit about that and what, what, what's, what that's like and what it has told you about like how the system works and how, how the police force works and how healthcare uh, works yeah. and how ambulances well, work and how people works? <laughs> a, a long question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The answer is 42. Yeah, I know. No, so, but, yeah, yeah, <laughs> in your <good>. words. <laughs> so what I can tell you that uh, since I know how the system works, I try to keep myself out of the system, uh, basically. Um, b because, uh, you know, I, I figured, so especially in 2017 to 18, I was in the ambulance in Berlin. And it was really, really stressful because we were called out like every 10 minutes and there was not really such a thing like a break or something. But what you figured, especially in bigger cities, uh, the biggest problem of the people is that they are not communicating with other human beings anymore. And they're just influenced by the media day and night. They really, they just, they turn crazy in a, in a way. I, I think having too less communication with fellow humans increases the likelihood of you yeah you you have no reference anymore you know communication is always building up a reference when you um when you exercise it and therefore i think it can uh, support you to make you um sane but the lack of communication to fellow humans and the stress you have especially in the cities that turns people crazy on the long term so i think we have many people in the bigger cities which are way too lonely which are potentially already crazy, but uh, luckily most of them are not like dangerous. Um, they don't want to harm anybody, which is good for, uh, for the whole society. If people would in general want to harm other people, the cities would look way different, I think. Yeah, that's something you don't think about every day, but something, that's something to be thankful for that most people aren't maniacs or, or aren't violent or yes. have no violent intentions. So, so what about? The police. What, what's your what's your experience with working with the German police force? There's a lot of yeah, police so, in Germany. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I know, um, and there are even some um, Bitcoiner uh, in the in the police, which is which is great. I think so. Um, overall, I can say there are people like everyone else. So I um, respect them, and I try to approach them with a sense of um, respect when it comes to the situations um, I made good and bad experiences basically so i had policemen which were um, escalating the situation and i also had policemen which were de-escalating and which were very human and um yeah are very pro people basically <laughs> Yeah, but you wanted to get a one story yeah, for the yeah, police, right? Yeah, yeah. We're about the. I'm trying to fish it out of you because the, it was right, more. So. It's, it was not, and I'm uh, of course like. Uh, I, I know a lot of very friendly policemen myself, so it's not it's not bashing the police force in general, but it was something more about the incentive structures and and like how the system is rigged and how what what flaws it has in terms of what it makes people do and not do. Yes, okay. So I will give you two examples. Uh, first example. Uh, I was sitting on a bench a few years ago and had half a joint in my hands. And then two people approached me uh, out of the dark and I thought they want some tobacco or want some papers or need something. But it was actually the police, which were confiscating the joint. And we wrote like five pages of paper that I did something illegal um, at that time. And right now we are even about to legalize uh, marijuana in um, Germany, so don't know what's the state on that. Probably the government gonna take a bit more to finalize the legalization. But 
when I asked them like, okay, why, why are you doing this now? And uh, you have this thing where you can look away or we, when you can say, oh, this is just, uh, I just give you a warning and you can just leave, but you are filling out all the papers. And they basically said to me, yeah, yeah like it's good for our case statistics because every single drug user you figure out, this is illegal and we have to suspect and we have to, we have everything we need to close the case. Basically for the statistics, it's great because they solved the crime and it's way easier to uh, work with one people who is smoking a joint than uh, somebody stole something somewhere and you have to figure out when, what time did she stole what? I find this, I find this so fascinating because it's about victimless crime. I, a, a thing I noticed when I was in, in Munich two months ago was that everyone, everyone stopped at the, at the red light, regardless of if there were any cars or not. And, and, uh, me and, uh, and the, uh, and Rachel, the, the British lady, we, we walked across and all the Germans stayed until the, the light was green. So like, and I was just fascinated by the obedience of the flock there. And I thought to myself, why, why are they so obedient? I, I, I know they, they love rules in this area and everything's very orderly and uh, looks nice and the streets are nice and clean. But this, this level of obedience is, is just absurd. Like there is no car, just cross the street. But turns out you can get a fine for, for, uh, for jaywalking. And I guess this yes. has to do with the same thing that the, the, the system is set up in such a way that it's much easier for the police to, of course, it's much easier for the police to arrest someone for a victimless crime. Because a victimless crime is uh, most of the time committed by someone who has no violent intentions or no, no criminal intentions because, you know, victimless crime isn't really crime. It's just doing something that someone else don't think you should do. Like jaywalking or smoking, or or smoking something that they don't want you to smoke, and this is pretty weird because, like, the this also takes away time which the police force could have used for catching actual criminals instead of instead of just harassing harassing teenagers. <laughs> uh, Definitely, and that's that's so bad. And furthermore, like thinking of institutions, a political institution who actually solves the problem that it is there put in place to solve has no purpose anymore. So all of these institutions have an incentive to not solve the problem, but to look like they're trying to solve the problem, but not actually yes. solve the problem. If there was to no roll, crime to roll the dough as thin as possible, but it still has to exactly. be there. You can even look through it already. But yeah. Yes. When I grew up and w w watched, you know, these, uh, or not when I grew up, but like, say, say 20 years ago, there was a lot of documentaries about uh, overfishing and how, how uh, fishermen were bad because they, they depleted the resources of the oceans. You knew that you couldn't trust uh, fishermen, uh, in interviews because their, their livelihood was dependent on them catch, catching fish. So they would always be biased in what they said. The thing that struck me. <laughs> Uh, was that the marine biologists who warned about, you know, overfishing and the fishermen being bad were just as biased. They, they needed the, there to be a problem for their livelihood. Like their, their livelihood was dependent on there being a problem in the ocean. Otherwise, why do you need a marine biologist? And yeah. this is, this is like, this is just one example. It, it, it's a pretty stupid example, I know, but, but, but there's always two sides to that coin. So always follow the money and so see where the incentives are. Why, why people, because it's always tightly connected to, uh, to why people act the way they do. With cannabis, for instance, I think it's so, it's so ridiculous because right now the rules are so different depending on where you are in the world. Like uh, my brother told me a story about when he flew to Bali and uh, they announced on the plane that the, if you have any drugs in your luggage, uh, it's punishable by death. <laughs> like what is that and at the same time you have these free zones where you can do whatever you want basically and like i guess in berlin no one gives a shit and but the rules are so different in europe also like some zones are are extremely harsh on 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 drug users where while others aren't and it's just so bizarre to me that different rules should apply to different people but it just depending on 
wherever you happen to be born. I, I think that's yes. and yeah. And, and and this gets even crazier if you think of there is a border and like by moving one meter, I'm on this side of the border, I do an yeah. illegal activity. Now I took what literally I took one step and now all of a sudden, since because there is a border, now now everything I do in that regard is legal. So this is really this concept is so, so funny actually. It is. And the more, the more you study, uh, praxeology, which my <laughs> latest book happens to be about, uh, the more you, you, you realize these things and that the, the more you travel around the world, the more you see borders for th what they really are. And it's just an, an imaginary line that, uh, it's only there to represent the evil intents of some of your ancestors and not, not who took stuff from your other ancestors. That's, that's what they are. They're a remnant of some war from history. And when you really think about it, there's, since a human right can only be a right if it does not infringe on any other person's right. So you can't have a right to housing because so, that means you will have to have to violate someone else's right in order to get that person to build a home for you. Uh, yeah, well, that depends so, on whether you have the right to build a home or the right for housing, and that means somebody else has to well, build well, it for you. Yeah, like, the, but the, the, the houses just don't just pop out of nowhere. Someone has to build them. And if there's a document somewhere saying that housing is a human right, that implies that there has to be a... Someone has to be forced to build a house, or someone has to be at least tax-funded uh, to build a house. Which is, uh, at the end of the line, if someone refuses to pay the taxes, there will be policemen there and throwing them in jail. So, so I think like the only real human right is the right to be left alone. If, if, if you want every interaction between human beings to be consensual and peaceful and have no trace of violence whatsoever, that's the only right you can actually logically prove that it's, uh, it should be a human right. Yeah, that's a yeah. good. That's a good. That's a good point. Actually, uh, in, in Germany right now, it looks like the government is going to take the right for housing away from you by asking you to have a certain kind of um, heater in your home, and if you don't, then you need to move out out of your house. Oh, and I guess that kind of heater is not a Bitcoin miner. Oh, well, actually, some people are making up their minds already and saying, well, this is using electrical energy and electrical energy is renewable energy in the grid. So therefore we can maybe make something up. But, uh, <laughs> right now it's, you're not, you're not supposed to use oil or gas anymore for your heating and home. Ouch. <laughs> well, we have a fascinating future to look forward to. That's for sure. We'll see where it leads. All right, Luke, I'd like to let you in here for a part of the show also. I mean, you've been listening to the story and to this conversation. What, what questions do you have uh, for Andreas? Well, it's a fascinating story. I think uh, the main thing I'm interested in that you haven't uh, touched on already is uh, how did you get into Bitcoin and how has that been affecting your life throughout all this? Yeah, so basically... The friend who stepped me was also the friend who introduced me to Bitcoin. Ah, uh, so like, uh, that all makes sense now why you would, didn't want to see him in prison and you didn't want to punish him. And uh, yeah, that's, yeah. Being really? introduced, <laughs> yeah, but be, being orange peeled by someone is so much better than, like, if you have a good scale and a bad scale and stabbing is far out on the bad scale, orange peeling is still way longer out on the, on the good scale. So it sort of evens itself up. Uh, this is just me trying to make a lame joke, by the way. No, no, no. <laughs> Actually, you're really, you're really on point on this. In one of our phone calls that we had, you said, like, how oh, sorry is for what happened. And I said, well, but in the end of the day, you freed me from fiat prison and I will be always grateful to you for this. So I think without him, it would have taken me probably five more years before the signal of Bitcoin becomes so strong in my environment that I would uh, get my head around this. But I was ignoring Bitcoin since 2014. I thought it's another paper and I couldn't imagine something else. Um, so yeah, Bitcoin really helped me to see a better future. And this is a really great gift. And did it directly help you cope with the, the situation of being stabbed? No, I don't think so. Indirectly? 
I'm grasping for straws here, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But in, indirectly, well, at least with uh, Bitcoin, it's easier again to imagine a future. And this is something I have been lacking for a few years, basically in, in fiat. So I would say from 2017 till 2020, I, I, I didn't see like a bright future for myself in the fiat system because I didn't want to. Uh, climb up the ladder, so to speak, and, and do all the things that you have to do to get forward within the system, which means getting to know somebody else and helping him and then hoping that he might remember you uh, later on when he's in a higher position and all this, like, uh, this is not my style and I never wanted to be like this. You refuse to play the fiat game. <laughs> the yeah, career exactly. game. Yeah. And I got the results, which is, well, you get like a little bit of fiat, you can make your living, but never expect to be a sovereign or independent. Uh, true that. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your, um, this pled coach. Yes, of course. So in 2016, I took education in becoming a hypnotherapist because I found it very interesting. Uh, in the, I was interested in the technique, how it's working. And coaching and development is my own uh, rabbit hole since about 21 years now. Because when I turned 14, I was in a course and uh, I was taught that with your mind, you know, with your thoughts, you can change your body or you can change your, change your emotions. And this opened a rabbit hole for me. And I, uh, so the question I'm looking the answer for two is how much of our existence is done in our mind, basically. And I come to the conclusion that it's way more than we think. And uh, I want to uh, help and support plebs in updating their uh, operating system in terms of the world and of possibilities and uh, impossibilities. Okay, so how does that work exactly? What, what, can, can you tell us a bit about your process? How would you help someone? Yes. So usually it starts with um, figuring out what problem the person has or what problem the person imagined being heavy, basically. And then we check in with them on their like uh, worldview and, and on their model of the world, on their map of the world. And then from there, we can help them to come to new ideas or new insights which then change their worldview and basically eradicate the problem. Because any problem one has is in their mind and not in the like objective world. There's, there's nothing to fear but fear itself type of thing, I guess. Yes, that's like one good way I'm looking to this topic. And how do you hypnotize someone? Like, do you do, you do that? Do you sit with a, uh, you, you know... Pocket watch in front of them, yeah. Uh, you can do that, but there are better ways, I would say, and less obvious ways. Basically, for me, hypnosis is just good communication and being in trance is uh, being in contact with oneself. So I can hypnotize you by helping you to get in contact with yourself. And I can do so by pointing certain things out, which are maybe not in your conscious awareness, but which are still in your unconscious awareness. Like the name your parents gave you, it's not in your conscious mind, but in your unconscious mind. Well, I can bring it out to my conscious mind pretty easily. Uh, like, yeah, exactly. I, but it's, you mean it's rooted deeper than that? So it's, it's like a, a part of my operating system already. Uh, or like your name ha is a fixed variable operating system. A yeah. constant. Yeah. Oh, all right. Is there another example of this? Like your mother's tongue, maybe their, your native language? Well, yeah, uh, the, those are all like clues towards the situation. But of course, I would need like where you would like to go to, or maybe you have been in trance before, and this is something you remember, and you remember how you felt that time. Hmm. I, I'm trying to like think of the closest thing to a trance. I've, I, I've experienced on several occasions a deep, deep focus on, on what I'm mm -hmm. doing. So mm -hmm. w when I was in a, in a band, for instance, sometimes when we were jamming or... or you know, rehearsing a song, you could be so 
consumed by by the experience so that you felt a, a oneness with the other people you were playing with that yeah. usually didn't last even the whole song but just for a short segment of it where it feels like time stands still and you're you're yes. just you're living a 100% in the moment and yes. you're 100% alive and uh yeah something similar to that in, in my writing process of course writing something there's no adrenaline or anything going on there so it's it's kind of hard to 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 uh compare that to a a more a situation where more things are more stuff is going on and where you have to be fully focused i i sometimes it's like you need your body to be doing something else in order for your mind to be entirely focused yeah it it, it is helpful at least if your body is doing something else that you don't do regularly so this is helping your unconscious to basically pop up we had this in the talk uh, in Stuttgart there was a guy saying yeah you know I have the best ideas in the shower why is that and how can I have good ideas outside of the shower as well and so I I, I was playing a bit with his model that good ideas come from the shower no good ideas come from your brain but if you think that you're more likely to have good ideas in the shower, then the likelihood of having good ideas is higher because you do the framing already. Our brain always works in a way that we are not lying in the end of the day. Whatever you will say or express will become truth because it's your, your, your truth. And as I said before, I think there's no objective truth. Um, but we can agree on certain things. But uh, like, however you want to design your universe, Feel free to do so. Did you hear about something called the meme theory of everything? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, this is a, a, a if we were going to go deep loading here, this is like a theory of consciousness creating reality to the extent in which like this theory, this is me trying to paraphrase it. So it's not, it might not be a hundred percent accurate, but from my understanding, it's reality is where, where our memes collide. So all conscious beings, where their uh, interpretation of the, where the reality their their minds create, where you know the timeline in the multiverse or whatever, like the whatever the superpositions of the quantum realm turn out to to land in uh, in what we call objective reality, it's just where our memes converge and where our minds converge. Uh, and this goes for all conscious beings, and maybe some of them are more influential than others in creating reality. Uh, and this would also explain why we haven't detected any life uh, life forms in outer space, because there's a meme horizon where our, our consciousness says, "What's the plural of consciousness, uh, Luke? Consciousnesses? Consciousnesses? Sure. Consciousnesses? Where where they?" Uh, uh, th there's a meme horizon where they can't sink anymore because the lag is too big because of the speed of light and, and the lag from that. So that would explain why we haven't seen conscious life in, in, uh, in outer space. So, so finding uh, an extraterrestrial civilization and like a, uh, what's it called, a Dyson sphere around another star or something would debunk the theory instantly. And that, that would itself be a proof that there is such a thing as objective reality. So like, <laughs> what's your... What what have you heard about this theory? Is something similar? No, I, I I like the I like the idea that everything that like this is our meme world and everyone else is just uh, living in it. And I I would even say, well, it's my meme world and everyone else is living in my meme world. And with the memes, I can share my world with some of the other meme users, you know. But uh, in the end of the day, and so that's what I figured at least for myself at this point in time. Maybe I'm saying exactly the opposite tomorrow, but um, it's that I create my universe um, in a very profound way and ways that I don't even know before on beforehand, but with the right framing. And I think just like some positive vibes, the, the creation will be a better process than if I say like, oh, tomorrow's got to be even shittier than today. Like this is not being helpful or productive in my perspective. No, if if you think that every day is getting worse, uh, then each and every day is the worst day of your life. By definition. Exactly. So, but so always worse than the day before as well. Yeah, yeah. And so it doesn't matter how little it turns wor into a worse state. It's still the worst day of your life. Like <laughs> if, if that's your outlook on life. 
I, th- I think yeah, it's exactly. extremely powerful because you can feel it when, when you embrace, you know, not doing what you don't want to do anymore and you start embracing doing what you actually want to do, how much, how empowering that is and how much it, it changes your life by, by first changing your mind. So you become more focused and you can prioritize much better because you know what things you need to do first and what comes later. So. And yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a way of getting to know yourself better and, and thereby knowing reality better. Because after all, you yourself is the only tool you have for, for uh, interpreting what reality is. Everything is exactly. filtered through you. And yes. this is why I like the technique of uh, tongs so much, because with tongs you can change the filters and you can change the underlying concepts that you have towards your world. So uh, let's say a, a person is afraid of heights, and they will always think next time I'm getting into a situation where there is a possibility to be afraid of the height. I will, I will use the first chance, you know, the brain is looking already for, oh, when I can kick off the, the bad feelings or when can I kick off the stress? Because this way, this person has planned the stress in the future, um, already. So I had a patient and I asked her, Okay, now show to me, how are you afraid of heights? And she said, well, I cannot show it to you. And I said, well, but if you think about heights, then you must be afraid. And she's like, no, only when I'm in the situation. And I said, okay, but when do you know that you are in a situation to be afraid of heights? And at some point she figured that, oh, it happens in her mind first, because it's not the objective situation in the outside. It's whenever the pattern she's looking for is matching her inner pattern, then like uh, she's afraid and then the fear kicks in. But you can change that pattern. You can, uh, or you can even postpone it. Like uh, if somebody is afraid of heights, just offer them to be afraid one hour after the event instead of before. And this change in the time <laughs> relation really breaks their problem because now they wouldn't be afraid in the situation. And the fear would start one hour afterwards, but one hour afterwards, there's no reason for the fear anymore. So in the end of the day, you could live without the fear. Uh, fascinating stuff. <laughs> <laughs> what are you afraid of, Luke? Yeah, interesting question. I haven't thought about it uh, lately. Uh, maybe standard stuff. I don't know. Uh, I don't love heights, I guess, but uh, I don't know. Interesting I- question. Heights get scarier and scarier the older I get, I, I would say. Like, or they get more, I wouldn't say scarier, they get more uncomfortable because your imagination it gets better and you know what happens if you fall down. Like, it's easier for you to imagine what, what will happen if you, if you take a wrong step. Yeah, uh, I, I even agree. So my respect for the height is also growing, but not my discomfort with being in that elaborated or, or higher uh, position. Like, I think I, I think I used to be more afraid generally, like, uh, I, I was, I was raised pretty neurotic and my, my mother's quite neurotic. And, and I think the, uh, the, the thing I needed to do is I needed to get braver. And then this is, uh, this is another little bit of, um, Jordan Peterson here is that, uh, cause, cause he's, he's done therapy in, in areas like this, I think. And, uh, it, it was that people don't become less afraid, they become more brave. And so it's like you overcome mm-hmm. the fear as opposed to the, that the fear gets smaller. So it, it's not like the scary thing ever goes away, but you learn to overcome it. And I, I think hearing that and learning something like that uh, was was helpful. And now I take life a little bit braver, I think. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And that's probably true. I mean, I was always scared of my life being boring. Uh, there's a scene in this uh, movie Papillon from the 70s where, where he's, he's been, the, the, it's about this wrongfully accused person who's imprisoned on the Salvation Islands for, for half of his life. And after like 20 years, he has an hallucination and he crawls up to a jury in the desert who, who deems him guilty. And he says, but I'm, I'm not guilty. I was innocent all along. No, you're guilty of something much worse. You're guilty of wasting your life. That scene is so powerful to me. And when you realize that you only have one shot at this, that's that's when you start start to change and start embracing stuff instead of being scared of them. I mean, everyone's afraid of making a change. What people should be afraid of is not making a change, like just being stuck in their old patterns and just growing older and more resentful as we 
talked about just before here, like the, that mentality that makes each and every day just worse and worse. It's not going to lead you anywhere. Exactly. Exactly. But this, the nice thing about uh, thoughts and ideas is that they can change within a second, within an instant. If you get the right input, then I know for certain if a person gets the right input, then this forces the person to change their um, mental model of the world. And uh, you will have a different output afterwards. So did you do these therapy things? Uh, like, were you a, a therapist and a coach before Bitcoin or after? Yes. No, before. Before. And do you think it helped you understand, understand Bitcoin? Do you think it helped you in, in your rabbit hole journey? Yeah, it will definitely um, help me. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure of that because it brings you to so many more things and aspects of life. And um, wh what I didn't say is um, that I always had the idea that I will have a really, really good life. I didn't define by then what what like really good was, but I, I knew always that it will be not the standard fiat life for me. So this is something which which just. It becomes true every day more and more because already of being in the podcast and talking to so many people, it's, it's so nice. And it's definitely something that I imagined uh, for myself. And now Bitcoin is even supporting me to, to have that lifestyle. And I think Bitcoin tells you like, oh yeah, just go the way you're going. You're, you're doing, you're doing the right thing. Despite from gaining more fiat. You have no feedback in fiat, whether you are going the, the wrong or the right way. And even if you get more fiat, you could still be going a, a horribly wrong way. Yeah, I've been thinking about this, like, like this listen to your heart sort of thing. I'd say listen to your Bitcoin, like because uh, as I said in my talk in, in um, Stuttgart, that this whole you, you are your Bitcoin shtick that I do, like uh, I've been regurgitating over and over this thought. And in other places, but the biggest message of that is like, if they're a part of you, th they can influence you. Like your Bitcoins can influence your decisions and you can listen to them. You, they can guide you. They can guide your decisions. You can really take them to heart in that sense. And as you say, it can make you feel more confident because you have this, you know, that your future is secured in terms of you having something that's tradable and that will be scarce uh, forever. So, so it will forever be tradable uh, maybe not that always at the highest price but at least at least there's that and there's it gives you an anchor to something that just simply exactly. isn't there in in, in fiat and, and yes. that feeling that feeling can uh it's a voice you can listen to and furthermore like imagine wh whenever bitcoin 10x is in purchasing power that voice gets amplified 10x uh, at the same time so the voice yeah, gets yeah. louder I, I was a, reading the tweet of yours. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I tweeted something along this line. So, uh, yeah. so this is one of the latest thoughts I had around this. That, that this, if if you are your bitcoins and and your bitcoins can communicate with you directly within your brain, then you can listen to them. And uh, a rising purchasing power is just an amplifier of your bitcoins voice in your head. This little voice in your head that is your bitcoins. Yeah, and 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 also of your like of your possibilities in, in the world simply because you have the economic background to um to get yourself to a situation or to have people and and uh, yeah to have people cooperate with you um in a cool way because you have the resources to ask them for their value and to ask them for their cooperation yeah because with truthful money is very unlike untruthful money it's it's it unlocks like truthful money doesn't turn you into this Gordon Gecko greedies type, uh, you know, uh, crony capitalist. It really doesn't. It turns you into something completely different than that. It it, yeah. it 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 functions as an amplifier for your whatever you want to do with your life, and without without having to fuck over everyone else in the process. Exactly. Uh, with yeah, exactly. Fiat, with a fiat game, you can get what you want, but you have to fuck other people over in in order to get it. Yeah. So, a so and in a bad way yeah, as well. <laughs> like fucking people is not always bad, but you have to fuck them over, you know. <laughs> uh, true that. Is this gonna get censored, Luke? We've never had problems and I, I, I think this conversation's been been very good. Nothing nothing that needs censoring. <laughs> the show is also sponsored and produced by Consensus Network. 
the first Bitcoin-only publishing house. Consensus specializes in translations of Bitcoin books and also publishes original titles in English and many other languages. Check out bitcoinbook.shop or consensus.network to see everything Consensus has to offer. We're also always looking for new contributors. Whether you have a book you want to publish, you want to help translate books into your native language, or you have some other way you want to get involved. So if you want to help spread the Bitcoin message, reach out to us by Twitter or email. Details are in the show notes. And finally, you can check out knutsvonholm.com for everything Knut, including some great Everything Divided by 21 Million merch and the Infinity Red Limited Edition wine. That's knutsvonholm.com for everything Knut. I hope you found it valuable. And uh, Andreas, where, where can we find you online? Where where do we find the pleb coach and all of this? Like, is your so content you mostly in German? Or? Yeah, so um, I, I speak uh, English as well, as you might know by now. <laughs> really? Um, no, you can, <laughs> you can find us on the uh, domain pleb.coach. And you can find us uh, on Noster and on Twitter. And uh, I would just, uh, or hopefully we can just put the links in the show notes. Excellent. And the Freedom Footprint uh, show is on Noster as well. So make sure to follow us on Noster. We have a Noster, what do you call it, an account? I don't even know if it's called an account, but we have a, a, a Noster profile set up now. So you, you have a Noster public and private uh, key pair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. There's one final question I have for, for you, and yeah. it's it's about a permission. Do we have the permission to call this a killer episode? Yes. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. We'll use that in our marketing. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> killer episode. Perfect. Thank you very much, Andreas, and uh, yeah, lovely to have pleasure. you on. And yeah, and I hope yeah. to see you soon again. I will yes. be going to back to. I'm going to Innsbruck. That's not really Germany, but maybe that's in your plans as well in in September. Uh, it's a big, the biggest um, German-speaking conference. Uh, so I think that's just the BTC twenty-three, then, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, it is. Oh, uh, yeah. So no. I, I, right now, I don't plan to go there, but there will be many events in the future. Um, I guess. All right. And yeah, maybe if you want to experience hypnosis, just uh, just DM me, and then we can find uh, some good thing for you. And you can hypnotize me via Zoom. Yeah, of course. <laughs> All right, I'll DM you and we'll do a hypnotizing session. <laughs> yeah, that can be good as well. Actually, I uh, hypnotized um, Chaka uh, at Presidente in, a, in, a pod in his podcast already. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll have to do that on the next one. It's a good reason to have you back and you can hypnotize yeah, me live. I, I would, uh, like that a lot. Yes, and uh, I can start ranting about childhood traumas and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just be sure to take him out of the hypnosis, Andreas. Or actually, maybe we won't notice the difference. Hard to hard. To... <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure, uh, and uh, yeah, it was also a pleasure having the joke night with you, Knut. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And Thank you. Looking forward to meet you in person uh, one or the other day. Excellent. Take care, Andreas. See you next okay, time. Yeah, you too. Bye bye. Yeah. Thanks again. This has been the Freedom Footprint Show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>